Well, we're reading Hebrews at the moment, and uh, coming to the end of it here in Hebrews 12, and I, I want to share with you the idea that <clears throat> Hebrews is in fact a transcript of a breaking of bread exhortation, as we would call it. It's quite clear that Hebrews is, is different to the other letters that we have in the New Testament. The style is very different, and it's been suggested that therefore it wasn't Paul writing this, it was somebody else. Um, but I would argue that the difference in style is because this is a transcript of spoken words. This is not, as it were, someone sitting down uh, under inspiration with a, a blank sheet in front of them and starting to write out an argument. And none of the uh, reasons I'm going to give for that are very convincing in themselves, but when you put them together, I think you get a pretty clear picture that that is in fact the case. Okay, at the end, Hebrews 13:22, he says, Suffer this word of exhortation that I've written to you in a few words. Now, the only other time we come across that phrase, the word of exhortation, is in Acts 13, verse 15, where um, it was in a synagogue context, and they'd read a chapter from the Bible, or chapters or passages from the Bible, and somebody gave a word of exhortation. And this word of exhortation, it says, Hebrews 13.22, had been written down and then just appended to the end of it, there's some personal greetings. And it was a brief one, this is a brief exhortation, the writer says. I'm going to call him Paul, we don't know that for sure, but in my mind uh, I think it was. And he says this is a brief word of exhortation. Well, if you read through Hebrews out loud, you can read it through in about 45-50 minutes. And remember that Paul gave a word of exhortation at Troas that went on the whole night and someone fell out, the, uh, fell out of a window uh, asleep. And so, yeah, that would make sense if Paul could give a, an exhortation that went on all night and he says, well, this one is a short one. Yep, 45, 50 minutes, that would be pretty short. Okay, at the end of Hebrews 13, 17 and 24, he talks about those that have the rule over you and the idea of the ruler of the synagogue uh, Luke 8, 49, if you're making notes, Luke 13, 14, Acts 18, verse 8. This is a similar idea, but those that have the rule over you would be somehow understood in a, in a Jewish context, and he's writing, of course, to, to Hebrews, um, as the rulers of, of the synagogue. Now, Hebrews is really a, a load of quotations and allusions. In fact, half the text is really just quotation and then the rest of it is some sort of commentary upon those Old Testament quotations. That's exactly what one would expect from a word of exhortation that was delivered live to a group of uh, Jewish Christians. Now, so much in Hebrews is obviously relevant to the memorial meeting. He talks so often about the new covenant. The word covenant occurs 14 times, and the word testament seven times. It's the same idea. New Testament, new covenant. And the blood of the covenant is explicitly referred to. 722, 86, 91, 13, 20, and we've just read chapter 12, verse 24 to 26, talks about uh, that blood of the covenant being personified as a mighty voice speaking to us, shaking heaven and earth. Now, throughout Hebrews, I counted up 22 references to blood, 4 to body, 8 to sacrifice, 9 to offering. It's all absolutely relevant to the theme of the breaking of bread, the body and blood of Christ, the wine of the, the new covenant. 
And he says in uh, Hebrews 12, verse 8, we've just read, we are partakers of Christ's sufferings. And he's talked about that in chapter 3, verse 14, we are partakers of Christ. But elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 10, 17 and 21, he speaks of us as being partakers of the one bread and partaking of the Lord's table there. So putting those together, I think what he's saying is that in partaking of, of that bread and, and wine, we are partaking in Christ. We are partakers of his sufferings. But this is no empty ritualism. This is no formalism. We are symbolizing, what, in physical terms, taking a bit of bread and uh, drinking a small bit of wine, we're symbolizing in physical terms what we signed ourselves up to, to be partakers of him. And this is a uh, a really big theme in Hebrews, as I say, chapter 1, verse 9, we are partakers uh, in him as Jesus partook of our nature. Chapter 2, verse 14, we are partakers in Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence. Chapter 3, verse 14. Now, talking about the style of Hebrews, there is plenty of evidence that this is oral style, this is somebody speaking. Uh, rather than somebody just simply writing a letter. So many times he says, let us, let us do this. And he repeatedly uses the phrase that we've got here in chapter 12, verse 3, let us consider Jesus. 3 verse 1, 7 verse 4, 2 verse 9, we see Jesus. It's very, very Christ-focused, which is what, of course, the whole breaking of bread ought to be. Hebrews 5.11 in the Greek and in the Diaglot, talking about uh, Melchizedek, concerning whom in our discourse so far, in our discourse, it clearly was a discourse, Hebrews 7 verse 9, and so to say, well, that's sort of throwaway words that you might use kind of when you're talking, but not so much when you're sitting down to, to write. Hebrews 10 verse 8, he, he makes a quotation from the Psalms, and he says, saying above, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. Saying above, that's in the RV, it's as if he's got the scroll there in his hand and he's saying, well, just above this, above this quotation, you've got that bit that says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. Hebrews 8, verse 1, of the things which we are saying, RV, this is the sum. Summing up of the things that I have been speaking about. Hebrews 2, verse 6, one in a certain place, said something about when he quotes in the Old Testament. Well, why not be specific? Why not say, well, David said here, or so Isaiah said there, why one in a certain place? Um, that, that's not the sort of style you would use in a formal letter. That is oral style. And he's got this theme, or a couple of times anyway, of I'm running out of time. Hebrews 9 verse 5, the Kelebim, ah, yeah, of which we can't now speak uh, particularly. And then Hebrews 11.32 What shall I more say? For the time is failing me. The Greek really implies time is running out. The time's gone. Well, why is he so limited in time if he's writing a letter? But this is, I really do argue, um, a transcript of, of uh, an address that was given. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And that's 13 verse 15. Let us draw near, 4.16, we draw nigh. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace, 7.19. This really is uh, 
building up to a climax. In the chapter that we've read, in chapter 12 and chapter 13, this really is the punchline of the whole exhortation. Now there's a lot of appeal for self-examination and also a theme that we should not just um, go through a formal ritualism of the breaking of bread because he says, uh, let us exhort one another daily, 3.13.10.25 as if he's saying, look, it's not just Shabbat while we're here together on Shabbat and yet here I am giving you a few ideas from the Bible, from the Old Testament this should be a daily experience, and we in our generation certainly need to hear that. That Christianity is not a hobby, that it is not uh, going along to church and going through the breaking of bread ritual uh, once a week or whatever as a kind of conscience salver, that I have done my thing, that I've done my religious thing. This is to be a daily way of life. You remember in 1 Corinthians 11 where he talks specifically about the breaking of bread. He warns them in verse 29 about the danger of drinking damnation to oneself through having an incorrect attitude to the, uh, the memorial meeting. And I think he sort of almost alludes to that in Hebrews 11.29 where he says, Of how much sort of punishment do you suppose? And again, that's the sort of oral style thing. Uh, Shall he be thought worthy who have counted the blood of the covenant which they were about to drink, with the wine there in the cup, as it were, uh, an unholy thing. So the seriousness of our relationship with the Father and Son, how we stand related to the Lord Jesus, this is a, a sober theme, there's a sort of sober element there in, uh, in Hebrews. And I notice that in one sense he's very critical of them. This is in chapter 5, you are dull of hearing. And again, there in the... Uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, which we just read, you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks unto you. Yet at the same time, he's quite positive about them. Chapter 6, verse 9, we are persuaded better things of you. Um, and chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, but we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but we are of them that believe for the saving of the soul. So he's got the right style of both challenging and yet comforting. And that is a very difficult balance to get, uh, and yet it's the balance that God gets perfectly all through his word, that we are challenged. We are told that we are sinners. Time and again, our behaviour, our motivations are probed and made open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And yet, in the same way, we are also encouraged all the time. And that is, I think, the basis of our uh, into interaction with each other that it's not just a social club um, when was the last time that you in the right spirit rebuked someone sought to make a good thing better in their lives without you know that sort of uh, intrusive uh, curious nosy interfering kind of spirit that we know that is so wrong and, and so counterproductive now he talks a lot about Old Testament uh, precedent there, and he tries to draw the connection between those Old Testament characters and us today. He says, 11 verse 7, Noah was moved with fear. Then in chapter 4 verse 1, he says, we also should be moved with fear. Chapter 11 verse 11, Sarah judged him faithful who had promised. Chapter uh, 10 verse 23, 
we are told that we should judge him faithful who has promised. As Moses bore the reproach of Christ, chapter 11, verse 26, so he says, chapter 13, verse 13, right at the end of the exhortation, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Well, time and again, he's saying, look, these Old Testament characters are not just there in your Jewish history. They're not just there in the Bible. But there is a direct and an acute connection between those characters and you today. And so I now challenge us. When was the last time that you read something about some character in the Old Testament and changed your life? That because you saw or discerned that, for example, Noah did A in situation B, you therefore thought, well, I, in situation C, am going to take action D on the basis of what Noah did. Because if we are not changing our lives in that way, then all this is just bunk history. All this is just tickling our, our sort of sense that I'm a religious person. That there's got to be some real and dramatic and fundamental change, transformation, is the word Paul uses elsewhere. And of course, it doesn't just stop with the Bible characters. Jesus is given central place, quite rightly. And his sufferings there on the cross and in his life are again not to just be looked at as maybe a Catholic might look at a crucifix and sort of feel okay about it and touch wood and they just go onwards in life, living a life like everybody else does in, in this world. His suffering becomes ours. Chapter 10, verse 32, he talks about our afflictions, our sufferings. It's the same word translated suffering in the context of Christ's sufferings in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says there, chapter 10, verse 32, we are to endure a great flight of affliction or suffering. Same word here in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Christ endured the shame of the cross. So him enduring there is to become you and I enduring here and now today. In other words, there is not to be drawn in our mind a difference between him there in the first century and us in the 21st century here in Europe. This, this is not how it should be. The whole essence of Christianity is that he there becomes lived out in me here today. Now, in the context of the, the, the Hebrew Christians, I wonder if all this emphasis upon the great high priest that we've got here in, in Hebrews is because this was originally given uh, at the outbreak of, of the Jewish war. What happened in AD 66 to 70 was that the, the Jews rebelled against the Romans and initially they were very successful. The Romans were defeated at the, the foot of the Temple Mount Gallus, the leader um, of the Romans, his legions were defeated uh, and the Jewish zealots said that uh, all their success was because they were faithful to the law and they appointed a new high priest who was not a collaborator with Rome unlike the, uh, the guys in the time of Jesus and so I think that it's in that context that Paul or whoever is coming out with this exhortation that there is only one high priest <coughs> the great high priest 
is, is Jesus. And we are to move outside the camp of Israel, that is Jerusalem, Hebrews 13, verse 13, just as Jesus said, to, to leave Jerusalem. And so we also, in our context, are living in a world in which there are so many voices, so many offers of salvation here and now, so many offers of a great life here and now, um, <clears throat> of alternative ways to God, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> a kingdom of God here and now. If you buy this product, if you uh, save your money rather than be generous with it, if you uh, invest in a career rather than just live in the joy of serving God for here and now. So then, here in Hebrews 12, it, it seems to me that we have here in chapter 13 the, the crescendo, really, of, of this wonderful exhortation. And he says, 12, verse 23, You are come unto the general assembly and church of the firstborn. And in chapter 11, we read yesterday that whole list of faithful people, and he says, chapter 12, verse 1, that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And so, therefore, <coughs> verse 2 let us run with patience this race set before us, as if all these people are still alive, although they are dead, um, but as if they're still alive, cheering us on. We ought to see the connection between them and us. And in taking the bread, we symbolise my part in the body of Christ, but the body of Christ does not only refer to his literal body, it refers, as we know, to the entire community of believers, not only at this moment in, in time, but all those who have been in Christ or in the body uh, of, of God's people historically. And so by doing this, we are showing not only our connection with Jesus and his slain body personally, but with the entire community of, of those who have believed in him all down the centuries. And so, therefore, we, uh, I think uh, chapter 13, 11 to 15, uh, I think comes to the climax of the exhortation as the audience are preparing to take the emblems. The bodies of those beasts, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, in reference to body and blood, uh, suffered. Let us go forth therefore unto him, bearing his reproach. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. And I think his idea was not just now on Shabbat, as here we are at a Shabbat service, uh, thinking about Jesus and looking at the Old Testament types, etc., but let this be something continual in our lives. So I'd like to now look in a little bit more detail at uh, what we have here in, uh, in Hebrews 12. He says that because of all these things, because of all the exposition he's given and our connection with the faithful of the Old Testament, with all the, the teaching about the body and blood of Jesus, the greatness of the high priest we have, let us shed the sin, verse 1 of chapter 12, that does so easily beset us. Now, Dennis Gillett suggested that uh, the sin refers to some specific weakness that we each have to struggle with. And you can uh, take that or not take it as, <clears throat> as you like, but I thought I would, uh, I would share that with you. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus as our example, who despised the shame of the cross, or the Greek, he fought against it. He refused to be shamed before men, even though naked uh, and humanly defeated, 
he believed he was lifted up in glory from God's viewpoint. And that is the, the very beautiful uh, dual meaning in the idea of lifting up. Glory in Hebrew is the idea of lifting up. And he talks about how the Son of Man shall be lifted up. Uh, in one sense physically in crucifixion but as they did that and exposed him to his maximum shame he was lifted up in glory in the eyes of God now shame and fear of others eyes upon us how they are going to think what they might think if I did that if we fellowship that person if I was to uh, do this or do that or what would they think this, is, this absolutely debilitates human personality. It debilitates all kind of genuine spiritual growth. And Jesus refused to be shamed. It's rather like Paul says to Timothy, let nobody despise you. Don't let anyone shame you. In other words, shame and being despised are really only allowed by our attitude. And that's really important, I think, that we recognise that we are masters of whether or not we feel ashamed or not. And he's talked throughout Hebrews of how we are cleansed in our conscience from sin. And that's a wonderful idea, that we're not only forgiven, but our conscience is cleansed in Christ. Now, if that is really so, that all those sins that we have committed, and not only committed, but those things we have omitted to do, if all that is cleansed, if now that is no longer against us, and we can lift our eyes to God and feel for sure that there is nothing between him and me because of the work of Jesus, no one shall make us ashamed. There's very few talks that I've heard or given that I really remember, but I do remember a talk by John Davy at Kellogg's conference in Sydney in Australia where he in a, a short talk talked solely about this theme as I remember um, can you lift your eyes up to the sky to God as it were and unashamedly look up there to God uh, and that, that question has circled in my mind because it's a very profound question because if our conscience is cleansed in Christ, the shame has been taken away. The shame of sin, the shame of failure has been taken away. And it either has been or it has not been. And yet, he, you know, he says in Hebrews 12, 3 and 4, he challenges us to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, all of them trying to shame him, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood in your striving against sin. It's clearly alluding to Gethsemane, the Lord's sweat as great drops of blood. He's saying, you haven't done this. And yet he's saying this to people whom he has just assured a few, uh, I was going to say a few chapters back, but really uh, maybe ten minutes ago in his exhortation, he's just assured those same people that your conscience is cleansed in Christ. You are those who can, as John Davy put it, can look up to the sky and look at God, towards God, let's say, um, knowing that your conscience has been cleansed, but you have not yet resisted unto blood, have you, in your striving against sin? 
And he makes it also personal. Here in verse 5, he says, You've forgotten the exhortation that speaks unto you as unto children. And he's quoting Proverbs 3.11. And he's saying, look, this is talking to you. He does the same in Hebrews 3, where he quotes Psalm 95, where it talks about today, if you will hear his voice. And he says, well, that today was a day in Israel's history, and it was a day at the time of the psalmist in Psalm 95, and that today is for now also, in the first century when he was writing. Now, but this is quite an art, to personalise scripture, to read scripture, as we have here in Hebrews, a great example, and personalise it to me, that this is talking to me. Harry Whitaker used to talk about playing Bible television. Uh, that is, looking at these Old Testament or biblical, let's say, uh, histories and stories and characters and incidents, and seeing it playing out for real in front of our eyes. And then out of the, uh, the, out of the movie, as it were, comes the voice to us. It is only the Bible, in that sense, that helps us then to make sense of what's going on in our lives. In chapter 12, verse 11, he, he talks about that a bit. He talks about chastening, which yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. But earlier in Hebrews, and there's a lot of connections, interconnections within Hebrews, he's talked about the idea of being exercised. In Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, he says... He talks about the word of righteousness uh, and using it. By reason of use, those who use the word of righteousness have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So we're exercised, Hebrews 5, by the word of God. We are exercised, Hebrews 12, verse 11, by chastening, which yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So that's why he talks in Hebrews 5.13 about the word of righteousness which causes our senses to be exercised. The word of righteousness. In what sense? The sense is that insofar as God's word acts in us and, and is a power in our lives in a meaningful way we become righteous. Our chastening the situations we go through in our lives yields peaceable fruit of righteousness. But the sufferings that you and I have do not, in that sense, differ hugely from those which the guy next to us has in the world. The difference is that God's word gives meaning and, and sense to them and helps them to bring forth in us the fruit of righteousness. That is the difference. And that is how there's a kind of... Um, a mutual relationship going on there between, <clears throat> between God's word the, the, the working of God's word and the working of trials and difficulty in our lives and if we, as often happens unfortunately, throw the Bible out that oh I'm suffering so forget the Bible, forget God well then it's a, such a tragedy because all that suffering then will be for nothing and yet if we realise that it's all sort of working in tandem, God's word and our suffering, then life starts to make sense. And we see a sense of, of real progress going on in our lives. Now, <clears throat> talk about uh, Paul saying, my time is running out. 
Um, okay, but let's just uh, go forward then to chapter 12, verse uh, 24. And he talks about the blood of Christ speaking a message better than that of Abel. So then, it's as if he sees the blood of Christ as a, a voice. A voice so powerful, he says, that it can shake heaven on earth. He talks, uh, he draws a parallel between the earthquake that shook Sinai and all the, um, the people were scared and terrified. But this, this awesome sight, the uh, mountain burning with fire, a rock on fire, as it were. And he says that was nothing compared to the way the voice of the blood of Christ can shake all things. Now, this is the huge power of the things that we have symbolized in that bread and wine that is in front of us. In number 7, verse 89, the, the voice of Yahweh was heard over the blood sprinkled on the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testament. God's voice is in or over the blood of Jesus. In other words, there you see the essence of what God is asking of you and what God is telling you. When Paul talks in Corinthians about the word or the preaching in the AV says the word of the cross, I think he means the word which is the cross. Not the word which is about the cross, but the word which is the cross. And so the blood of Christ is as if he personally is speaking to us. As he says, verse 24, that the blood of Christ speaks to us better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Who is he talking about? The blood or Jesus? Well, he's talking about the blood as if it's a personification of Jesus. This is the word of the cross to each of us. Uh, and this is where you know, Paul comes to an end of really this exhortation where I come to an end really because it can only go so far the real message to you and me is not ultimately in the words of a man the, the real message is in God speaking to us through the blood of his son and that is why we are to examine ourselves and to think about him to meditate upon him and to give ourselves to focusing in, a, in a, uh, an undistracted way upon the fact that 2,000 years ago on a hill just outside Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon on a day of April he died for me and I as it were am in the crowd standing in front of him and quite naturally I think we know, if we poke around and search around in, in the depth of our conscience, I think we know how we should respond practically. But it needs thought. It needs a bit of time. It may only be, I say only, five or ten minutes. But make that time. And don't tell me you don't have five or ten minutes. You do. I know you do. And I know that I do. Let's make that time. I think that's the least we can do. To just focus personally on what he did for us there and what that is speaking to me. Because it's speaking both comfort, encouragement that you are saved, that you will be there, that you are forgiven, your conscience is cleansed, and yet it's also telling you that you 
have not yet resisted on the blood in your striving against sin as Jesus did in Gethsemane and the blood of Christ his death for us our salvation that was made possible demands of us so much in, in joyful response